is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Rob Archer. Uh, new year, new show for us here, a new Congress and a uh, new House Speaker. Hold on a minute. No, Wait, not yeah, yet. That, that's the plan, right? California's Kevin McCarthy <laughs> has failed to secure a majority of Republican support in the first two votes. He remains roughly 20 votes short. So what happens now is the third time a charm. We're going to go in depth. Another week of bad weather is hitting much of the country, California included. This has air travelers wondering if Southwest Airlines can handle it this time around. People in Russia are reportedly getting angry and frustrated with the war in Ukraine. We're going to find out what this means for Vladimir Putin. The sports world is in shock over the collapse last night. Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin during the Monday night game against Cincinnati in Cincinnati. Hamlin suffering cardiac arrest on the field after making what really appeared to be just a routine hit. Hit. He got up, then he went down. We'll go in-depth into what surviving sudden cardiac arrest looks like. And there's a new study that explores what happens if you keep yourself nice and hydrated. The results are good. We'll explain. Oh, sorry. I was taking a drink right there. Uh, we're going to start with the votes for House Speaker. With us is uh, Mark Sandalo, political analyst with the University of California Center in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today. So here we are, the uh, first day of the uh, Republican-led House, and uh, the results of the first two votes, maybe the third, is going to be the uh, Democratic winner. Uh, are are Republicans kind of demonstrating that they they can't govern? You know, it's humiliating for them. I mean, this is a day in the Constitution, January 3rd, that is when the new Congress takes over. It's a Republican majority. And it's a day of pomp and circumstances. Members bring their kids onto the floor. And the very first order of business, even before they swear in the new Congress, is to elect a new speaker. So now we've been at this for four hours. They are just about to go on their third ballot. And what happens is all the Democrats vote for Hakeem Jeffries. Used to be Nancy Pelosi, but she stepped down as a Democratic leader. So they all vote for Hakeem Jeffries, 212 of them. Well, Republicans only have a four-vote majority. And at this point, 19 of them on the first two ballots have voted against Kevin McCarthy. The rest vote for McCarthy. Now, unfortunately for Democrats, it's not, it requires a majority to win. You don't win just because you get the most votes. There's no way that a Democrat's going to be the Speaker of the House. But this could go on all night. I mean, at this point, Kevin McCarthy has 90% of the Republicans uh, on his side, but he needs 99% if he's going to become Speaker. Yeah, Mark, which begs the question, how weak will today's events, today's vote leave whoever becomes Speaker, be it Kevin McCarthy or whoever again? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And it's already weakened him. I mean, McCarthy agreed over the weekend that among the concessions, and these are conservatives, it's not so much that Kevin McCarthy is a liberal. No one would call him that. But Kevin McCarthy has been unwilling to do things like shut down the government, uh, you know, vote against a debt ceiling increase. And, you know, some of the Republican activists really, really want uh, to him to do this, do, do this uh, much more boldly. So, so, um, so McCarthy said to them, okay, fine. We can even do something where if five of you want to have a new vote for a new speaker at any time during my speakership, we'll vote again. If you aren't pleased with what I'm doing, you can take me down. Now nah, they said, we want 
any single member of the Republican Party doesn't like what you're doing to be able to call a new election. And it goes on and on. At this point, Kevin, I mean, Nancy Pelosi was, um, and I'm a bit biased here, not because I'm necessarily a huge Pelosi fan, but I did write a book about her a decade ago. She's going to go down as the most powerful speaker in a century. And whoever the Republicans elect and the odds are still on Kevin McCarthy is going to at least start out as the weakest in a long, long time. Mr. McCarthy appears to have a great appetite for humiliation, probably more than we <laughs> suspect right now, because uh, it looks like we're going to grind these votes out until he tries to get to the result that he wants. But let's just say, hypothetically, that he finally says, at long last... I have been humiliated enough. I'm stepping aside. Who is waiting in the wings to become the Republican Speaker of the House? So uh, the Constitution, by the way, says it can be anybody. It can be, I mean, like, it doesn't have to be a member of the House of Representatives. It could, it could be you, you know, it's unlikely, but uh, it's never happened before. But it could be literally anybody. But the people who are most talked about would be the number two guy in the Republican Party right now, which is um, uh, Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise. He's a representative from Louisiana. Stephanie Stefanik, she's the number three person. She's from upstate New York. Maybe a conservative like 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 Jim Jordan, who was voted on in the last ballot, um, you know, got 19 votes himself. So, so there are lots of possibilities. But let me point out that, I mean, this is like very amusing to Democrats and to political junkies, because we almost never see real news happen in front of our eyes, and it's happening now. But there's a real problem here. It, it, I mean, voting for a speaker is important. But, but it doesn't affect the, the whole country. They're going to have votes. Like, they're going to have to pass a budget at some point. They're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. If they don't do those things, the nation's in serious trouble. And what the conservative Republicans are doing now is making it clear that, you know, damn the consequences, they're willing to sort of grind the wheels of government to a halt. And I think that's the message which comes out of this. Mark, Mark, Mary, very quickly before I let you go, say they McCarthy is forced to bow out. They get someone who appeals to the fringe. What happens then to the rest of the Republicans? Shall we call them regular Republicans? Will they go along with that? Well, in some sense, it doesn't matter because of the Democratic Senate and Biden, the White House, they weren't going to pass sleeping, sweeping legislation anyways. But if that's the face of the Republican Party, they're probably in deep trouble in 2024. All right, Mark, thank you again. That's Mark Sandalow. He's a political analyst with the University of California Center in Washington, D.C. Right now, though, California getting hit with a series of storm systems this week, and it's going to drop a lot of rain and some mountain snow. Other parts of the country, like the south, could see uh, rain, snow, even tornadoes. Now, this raises the question of air travel, and could we see major disruptions again, especially with Southwest? Henry Hartfelt is a travel and airline industry analyst and president of the Atmosphere Research Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, one of the issues that Southwest had, uh, we are told, is uh, one of the factors was their IT infrastructure just was woefully short, was behind the times, uh, outdated, outmoded. So if uh, more weather is coming in, are we going to see the same problems since they haven't had time to update all of these computers? Good question. The answer is I hope not. Re one reason why Southwest was uh, such a disaster in the past week was that it didn't cancel flights or reduce any of its flying ahead of winter storm Elliot. If the airline reduces flights when the, uh, ahead of the bad weather sweeping in, uh, as it is here in California, for example, then it will be in a better position to recover. Henry, what's the best advice for travelers who see all this nasty weather heading our way? And maybe they've got plans for maybe a late January, early February trip coming up. 
Well, if you've got travel plans first, uh, it's always good to have a not just a plan A, but a plan B and a plan C. So obviously, uh, download your airline's mobile app, subscribe to text and email alerts so you can stay on top of any changes in your schedule, especially uh, as you get close to the flight time, including delays or cancellations. Um, take a look at what other airlines serve your, de- your destination so that if your flight gets canceled, uh, you know where perhaps the airline can rebook you. Or if you're on Southwest, you'll have to buy another ticket on that airline. At least you know which other airlines serve the market. Don't check bags if you don't have to, not just to save the money, but if something goes wrong with your flight, you have your luggage with you. You don't have to worry about it being in one city while you're in another. I think uh, travelers now have a taste of what to expect when we've got bad weather uh, that affects a big part of the country. They can predict that there are going to be some travel disruptions. And I think, by and large, most travelers, uh, they don't like it, but they, they kind of expect it to be something they're just going to have to deal with. But in Southwest's uh, position, let's hope for them that they've learned some lessons from the last one and maybe can respond a little bit more nimbly to this uh, new storm if it's as bad as we fear it might be. But let's say they don't. Uh, They have another breakdown like they had before. Would that be the death knell for Southwest? Do, Do they recover from another meltdown? If they have another meltdown on the scale that we saw last week, while financially it won't be the death that uh, the death knell of Southwest, they are a well-financed airline, a multi-multi-billion dollar corporation. It certainly is going to be a very damaging event for the airline's brand. It will erode what the trust that the airline has left, and it could lead to changes in the executive suite. Let's just hope none of this, this you know, that none of the bad stuff happens. Let's hope Southwest is prepared even if it means that they cancel flights ahead of a bad storm so that they can recover more quickly after the storm passes through. Well, internal systems aside, we know that Southwest is not good compared to what all the other airlines, the major airlines have. What's the biggest concern for the airlines when it comes to nasty weather? Is it the rain, the wind, the snow? What? It's, it, you know, wind is really the most disruptive. And interestingly enough, rain is worse than snow. Snow is actually usually uh, calm weather. Uh, uh, the snow itself isn't great. The cold weather isn't great, but it's usually calm winds. Rain can usually be accompanied by high winds, and winds are what can really disrupt airport operations and mess up all airlines serving that airport. Uh, looking ahead, we know the physics of flights not going to change any time in the near future. We're going to have bad weather, and that's going to disrupt air travel. Is there a long-term plan in the United States to be able to combat disruptions of this? And and what I'm pointing to, what I'm alluding to, is maybe a high-speed rail system. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, we we we... You know, there's construction that's been started on a high-speed rail network here in California. Whether it gets finished in my lifetime, uh, I don't know. But, you know, your question is a good one. We are far too reliant on uh, air travel for uh, interstate city travel. Uh, I'm sorry, intercity travel. And we really should have uh, high-speed rail, more high-speed rail, at least between major markets. Uh, I've traveled extensively in Asia, in Europe, and elsewhere. And it's frankly, it's much nicer to be able to take a train city center to city center. It's fast, it's convenient, and it's a greener option. Have you ever seen anything as bad as what went down with Southwest over the holidays this, this past year? No, never. And I've been in I've been an industry analyst for more than 20 years now, and I've 
Uh, before that, I worked for several airlines. Uh, uh, I have never seen anything like uh, on the scale of, uh, of what we saw with Southwest. It is going to be a an operational meltdown in a class of its own. It's one I don't think anyone ever wanted to see, and I certainly know no one wants to see repeated again anywhere in the world. And maybe one last question: the the the, the problems they have with their with their system uh, that again the other airlines have have a totally different system in place. Southwest needs to spend some money to do it. How long will it take to get that something like that that big done? Yeah, that's a good question. And Southwest has begun investment in some areas of its technology. These systems can take potentially nine months to a year to develop and implement and test. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm not really sure where Southwest is specifically with different systems, but it could mean that we won't see any improvements much before the end of this year. I'll be thrilled if they do come through faster, though. Okay. Henry, thank you again. That's Henry Hartvelt, uh, travel and airline industry analyst, president of the Atmospheric Research Group. And, you know, Chris, we're watching the uh, third vote here in the U.S. House for the Speaker. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it does look like uh, Kevin McCarthy has not gathered in enough votes already. Uh, he's already behind yeah. just to begin yeah. this vote. It's early in the third round. Yeah, of it's early in the third round. But uh, well, and, and if you look right now, uh, uh uh, J- uh, Jim uh, um, Jordan already has eight, and the key number is uh, McCarthy can only afford to lose four. So, and he's already lost eight in this round. Yeah. So, mo- we'll move on to round four. Yeah, we'll have round yeah. four if he wants if he continues to have this appetite for humiliation, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before. Right now, though, more people in Russia might be souring on the country's war with Ukraine, their invasion. Multiple reports say people are starting to lash out at military leadership in Russia. This comes after Russia said 63 of its soldiers were killed in a New Year's Eve attack. William Palmerantz is director of the Wilson Center's uh, Keenan Institute. He's a Russian and foreign policy expert. Uh, Sir, thank you for joining us. First of all, what are you to make, what are we to make of this backlash and just how concerning should it be for Vladimir Putin? Well, the, back, the backlash is significant because clearly the Russian army was not prepared and did not do what was necessary to make sure that the attack on the barracks uh, took place. So there is criticism of the army, demands that the Russian army discipline some of its leaders. But whether Putin really faces a major uh, backlash to his military operation in Ukraine is suspect. Uh, I don't think the Russians have the leadership to mobilize a mass protest. And I don't know if the Russian people are really capable of challenging Vladimir Putin and his leadership at this time. Yeah, that was uh, uh, kind of presages my question. Uh, Putin has spent so much time and energy in in clamping down on dissent and and silencing it. And uh, nobody has any doubt that he is an authoritarian. But uh, if say, a backlash against him grows, obviously he's got in place people who will take the fall for him or he will make them take the fall. Uh, could this ever grow into something that endangers Putin's leadership of the country? Theoretically, yes, but at the present circumstances, no. Uh, because, again, as I mentioned, uh, a, a, a attempt to kind of disable Putin's leadership would cause would have to include a lot of different actors in Russian politics and in the Russian elite and in the Russian military. And I don't think at this point uh, that this coalition of forces is strong enough 
uh, in light of all the oppression that Putin has put in place against the opposition to challenge his leadership. What might be Vladimir Putin's next step in all this? Of course, we're in the dead of winter now, very cold days in Ukraine. What might be next? His next step is that he's going to continue with this war. If you look at his New Year's uh, address to the Russian people, uh, this is really a war, an existential war for Russia and for Putin, that the West is, 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 is clamping down against Russia, that it's against Russia, uh, that the Nazis in uh, Ukraine are in charge. There are really just a, a lot of outlandish charge, charges that Putin can't backtrack from. And therefore, uh, I think that the most likely scenario is that the war will continue and it will be a very slow war of attrition and that it will be quite some time before someone emerges either Russia or Ukraine, with the upper hand. This war was of uh, Putin's choosing. Uh, He chose to go to war in Ukraine because he is the leader in Russia. Uh, But how did it go so wrong? Uh, Was he so overfilled with a false confidence, or were people around him filled with uh, telling him only good news that, oh, no, we are completely ready, we're so powerful, no one can stand against us, and Ukraine will fall in three days? How did it go so wrong for him? Well, I think that Putin really did think that he was going to be in Kiev in a matter of days and that there would not be any sort of support for Ukraine from the West and that therefore Ukraine would not be in a position to defend itself. So I think that Putin really believed his own propaganda that Ukraine was weak and that in case of a, an invasion, uh, Ukraine would fall very quickly. And that just simply hasn't been the case. And now, uh, in the aftermath of almost a year of war, uh, billions and billions of dollars of of military equipment has been sent to Ukraine. So the idea that somehow Ukraine is just going to fall and collapse uh, is just not on. All right. Uh, Sir, thank you for your time. Again, that's William Pomerantz, director of the Wilson Center's Keenan Institute, Russia and foreign policy expert there. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens. I'm Rob Archer. Latest update we have on uh, Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin is that he remains in critical condition after suffering cardiac arrest during what appeared to be a simple routine tackle in last night's game in Cincinnati. And that's right. He was given CPR by medical staff right there in the field. Uh, quick treatment probably saved his life. What happens to somebody shortly after they survive cardiac arrest? With us is Jeff Fague, a financial executive in Manhattan who, who survived sudden cardiac arrest several years ago. We're also joined by Dr. Bradley Serwer, chief medical officer at uh, Cardio Solution. Thank you uh, both for joining us today. I'm going to start with you, uh, Mr. Fague. Um, when you experienced this event, what was the first thing you felt? And tell us what happened. Yeah, I just, uh, I, was, I was with a group, big group of people. I had finished a run about a mile and a half. I was more winded than I thought I should be. Uh, I was walking just to, to get normal again. And then all of a sudden, it was like a switch went off. And I felt very, very sick. Uh, and then uh, that was about the last thing I remember. I reached over to my father-in-law. I said I wasn't feeling well, and, and I passed out. Did, Jeff, did you get quick attention, much the same as what happened last night? Yeah, I was fortunate that uh, seven years earlier in this community, we had bought a defibrillator 
Uh, the training for it happened to be the week before. People get trained every other year on a defibrillator, which is critically important. Um, so someone immediately started CPR on me. Someone ran and got the defibrillator. They strapped it onto me, and uh, they brought me back to life. And uh, Dr. Serwer, we, we still don't know exactly what happened uh, with the uh, player there. Uh, there are some theories going around. But but explain for us in general terms, uh, like when somebody has a heart attack, it's not one specific type of thing. There are different types of heart attacks that you can have. I mean, you hear about people whose hearts just stop. But, but what generally happens and what different types of heart attacks do we experience? So, you know, the term heart attack is sort of a general term, but what we're really referring to is sudden cardiac arrest. And sudden cardiac arrest is when the heart uh, goes into an abnormal rhythm that doesn't perfuse, is not able to cause the heart to squeeze and pump on a normal basis. Now, a heart attack really, truly, is when a blocked artery prohibits blood flow to a certain part of the muscle. And those are dangerous because that causes that muscle to malfunction and many times go into those abnormal heart rhythms. So a heart attack i.e. a clogged artery, can cause a sudden cardiac arrest. So we don't know what happened um, with DeMar, um, but it does appear that he did have a sudden cardiac arrest. Could there be any underlying factors, uh, a pre-existing condition that, that he may not have known about that may have played into this as well? So obviously we don't know the specifics. There are a few inherited and wild type um, uh, cardiac conditions that will uh, increase the potential for having a heart rhythm uh, go into this. Uh, some people have what's called long QT syndrome or Brugada syndrome that increase the likelihood of abnormal cardiac rhythms. Um, but what we do see, especially in a lot of young, healthy athletes, is a condition called commotio cordis. Commotio cordis is Latin for agitation of the heart, but essentially what it is, um, when a, a significant blow to the chest wall is suffered, uh, if it hits right over the heart at a critical point when the heart is um, uh, repolarizing, it can actually put someone into an abnormal heart rhythm called ventricular fibrillation, which is this condition that is very common. Uh, we see it uh, in, in athletes, and if you have children on the sideline, you know, playing sports like football, uh, baseball, lacrosse, uh, anytime there's that high velocity ball that can strike the, the child, um, or in this situation, potentially a football player getting hit, that's enough energy to the heart that can cause that heart to fibrillate. All right, I want to go back to you, uh, Jeff Haig. Um, you experienced uh, this sudden cardiac arrest, and you told us, you know, the last thing that you remember. Uh, let's continue that. What's the next thing you remember, and how long did it take you to recover and, and get back to what you feel was 100%? Yeah, so I actually have strong memories of what, you know, what happened in between, which we don't have time to go into here. Um, but uh, after they shocked me, uh, I opened my eyes, I sat right up, uh, and I started trying to describe this dream I had. And much to my shock, nobody was interested in the dream. They were trying to assess, you know, do you know where you are? Do you know what time it is? Do you know what day it is? They were trying to, to assess my mental condition because if, if you don't perform CPR, um, people are likely to get some form of brain damage. And they were trying to assess whether I had brain damage. They'd called an ambulance. I had a lot of pain in my ribs from the CPR. Ambulance came, took me away, took me to a, a local hospital um, where they assessed me as stable, sent me to Manhattan to uh, to a hospital here where I'd been under the care of a cardiologist, Dr. Schwartzbard, the next day. Uh, 
an interventional cardiologist like like Dr. Sewer here um, went in and they uh, found three blockages in my arteries and they opened them up and they believe that they found the culprit for this cardiac arrest. Yeah, Jeff, maybe one last question to you and a quick follow-up from the doctor. Jeff, any residual factors from what happened that day affecting you now? You know, um, I'm, you know, fortunate that there was no, no serious heart damage, no brain damage. Um, but I, I, you know, I see my cardiologist a couple of times a year. I get checked. I take a big statin to, to protect my arteries and I take baby aspirin so that if anything ever happens, I'm, I'm more likely to, to survive it. Okay. You know? Jeff. And the one last, yeah. one last thing I'd say is, you know, I, I write a, a Facebook post, uh, every year called lessons from being dead. Um, the first thing I do is I thank the six people who saved yeah, my life. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I encourage everyone to learn CPR and learn how to use a defibrillator. And we're quite tight on time. Uh, Dr. Sewer, do you see DeMar Hamlin being able to return? I, you know, it's hard to say, but I mean, can somebody return to a, a sport like football after what happened we saw last night? Yeah, I sure hope so. Um, you know, without knowing any of the specifics, it really is hard to say. But I have had friends and colleagues that have had sudden cardiac arrest, and they've been able to return to their full function. Um, a lot of it depends on how much damage is done, um, depending on his underlying heart condition, depending on the reason why he had this cardiac arrest. If it was simply commotio cordis and they were able to uh, revive him promptly and quickly, uh, and assuming he suffers no neurological damage, um, he very well may be able to return. Okay. But that's a big if. Yeah. Dr. Sherwer, thank you. Uh, Jeff Fegg as well. All right, you've probably heard about uh, how you always need to drink enough water. <laughs> the old adage was something like, hold on a second. Go, 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 uh, eight go. glasses a day. Oh, they were talking about water. I'm sorry. I'm drinking something else. <laughs> yeah. Of course, water keeps you alive, but it also keep you uh, healthy, too. Yeah, a new study from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute finds adults who stay well hydrated appear to be healthier, enjoy a lower risk of developing chronic diseases, and may, may even live longer overall compared to less hydrated adults. Uh, joining us now to explain is Dr. Michael Hurt, director of the Center for Integrative Medicine in Tarzana. Dr. Hurt, thank you for joining us. First of all, your thoughts on these findings. Is keeping healthy really this simple? No, it's not this simple, but it's a great first start. And we have known about the importance of drinking water for a long time, particularly on the heart. Uh, this study goes a little bit further and says, well, it's not just heart disease, but also uh, helping you with your brain health, helping you reduce cancer risk and all kinds of other chronic illnesses that uh, take out most of us um, if we're not careful to keep ourselves healthy and well hydrated. You know, I have had uh, kidney stones a few times in my life, and every time the doctor will tell me, you need to be drinking more water, and they ask me, how much water do you drink? And I tell them how much I drink, and they always, always tell me that's not enough. Um, uh, and not just for kidney stones, keeping your kidneys uh, clean and healthy. How much water really do we need to be drinking? Because I've heard some different uh, answers about this. You've heard the uh, eight glasses a day, and then I've heard other doctors say, well, you don't need that much. How much do you really need? Well, that's a very, very important question because it it varies according to who you are, what you're doing, at what time of year it is, right? Here in L.A. right now, today, dreary, cold, Moisture content's pretty high in the air. Uh, you're indoors. You probably don't need as much water as when it's 113 degrees outside and you're going for a walk. Uh, so it depends on your, uh, your activity level, depends on the time of year, and it depends on the size of your 
body, right? Larger people need more water, smaller people need less water. But what's, what's most important to remember is that when you are under the age of about 60, your thirst mechanism is extremely sensitive. That means it will tell you to the ounce whether you are well hydrated or not. Now you can ignore that, uh, that uh, sensation of thirst uh, to your detriment, according to the study. But if you pay attention to it and drink when you're thirsty and stop when you're not, uh, your body regulates your blood sodium level, which is a determination that this study used for hydration status very, very precisely. As we get older, we're not that good at keeping our hydration status uh, even because that thirst mechanism starts to falter. And so people who are elderly can get behind on their water much more quickly than someone who's, who's young. The problem is that we, we don't pay attention. We're, we're too busy in a meeting. We're too busy with a report. We're too busy uh, walking the factory floor to drink the water that we really need and pay attention to that thirst. Doctor, I can remember when I got sick, uh, it was just before COVID, as so many people were getting sick in, in the months leading up to COVID. And I know at one point I became severely dehydrated when I went to a, a pharmacy. And I guess what I'm wondering through all of that is when we get sick, obviously it's it's that much more important to, to, to drink water. But um, are there bigger risks, I guess, when you're sick and dehydrated? Yes, there are, because when you're sick, typically you also have temperature. You're producing a lot of mucus, right, which you're spitting out or putting into a tissue. Uh, and so fever increases dramatically the amount of fluids that you need. And when you're sick and in bed, do you really want to get up and go to the kitchen and get something to drink? Maybe not. And you can get yourself dehydrated. When you get dehydrated uh, when you're sick, that can make you nauseous, make you even less uh, interested in fluids, which then creates more nausea, more, less interest. And you can get into some trouble pretty easily if some of that's accompanied with some diarrhea. Uh, now you're really talking about some serious dehydration, starting to feel lightheaded, dizzy. Um, those are warning signs, as is a darkening of your urine, uh, that you are underhydrating. And it's a common problem. And, you know, you can shoot for rough numbers like, you know, 8 to 10 glasses of water for a female, uh, 10 to 12 for the typical male, uh, again, more when you're exercising or it's hot outside. Those are typical, but your thirst mechanism and the color of your urine really help guide you uh, in terms of how much hydration you need right now. And doctor, very quickly, uh, what about people who say, well, I don't drink water per se, but I drink tea, coffee, uh, soft drinks. Uh, Is that enough? Does that count? Yes, it does count. As long as it's, you know, a liquid and it's going down, it does count. Because remember, most smoothies, they're 95% water, uh, soup, 95% 95% water, uh, teas, obviously mostly water, uh, coffee and caffeinated beverages, however, contain the uh, substance caffeine, of course, that will cause some uh, increased urination. So for every cup of coffee you're drinking, you should consider about half of that to be going toward hydration because you will end up urinating the other half you know, out. And remember, you can eat your way to hydration as well. Foods like cucumbers, right. zucchinis, watermelon, celery, carrots, radishes, jicama, these all are, you know, 95% water. Uh, and so you can get a lot of hydration just from what you eat, not just what you drink. All right. Very good advice there. Dr. Hurt, thank you. Again, that's Dr. Michael Hurt, Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine in Tarzana. And I think somebody might need to drink a lot of water right now is Kevin McCarthy because yeah. uh, he is 20 votes down in this third round. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's yeah. losing ground. I think so. That's it for this edition of KNX In-Depth. Along with Rob Archer, I'm Chris Seedens. We'll see you back here again tomorrow.